Welcome to the Middletown Podcast. I'm Kat Hughes. I'm a research officer at Middletown and I'm also autistic. With students heading back to school, I've been thinking a lot about young people who struggle to be there. Students who are really anxious about going to school and who are persistently absent. I want to talk to one of my brilliant colleagues at Middletown, Tara Vernon, who has experience supporting young people, their families and schools where the student is regularly absent. I started by asking Tara to introduce herself. Thanks, Gat. Thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Tara Vernon and I work as a trainer advisor for the centre. So I work primarily within the learning support and assessment department, but I also dabble a little bit in the research and development department also. And I got in touch with you because I wanted to talk about what I have described as school refusal. And the reason that I describe it as school refusal is because when I was in school, I very much refuse to go. So in my head, it makes sense as a way to describe it. But I know there's sort of better ways to describe it than that. So how would you describe it? Yeah, I think the most commonly um, used term is school refusal. But for me, I I think of it in terms of persistent school absence or, or school non-attendance. Um, and I suppose really, Kat, that's because the term school refusal, for me anyway, it suggests that the responsibility of school attendance, it lies solely with the autistic student. Um, so that the student is willfully choosing to not attend. But we know that that's not true. And in, in your case, I know it wasn't true either. Like there are there are multiple variables that will affect school attendance for our artistic population. So we need to shift the onus away from the student and look at what are, what are the wider things? What are all of the variables that affect this student? And in fact, there's approximately 30% of students um, as per as I am, I mean, a couple of years ago, a report that they did, but uh, within the Republic of Ireland um, population, but shifting it away from them and, and looking at what we can do, how we can um, how we can better support our students so that they they are able to stay in the in, in the school environment and within their education. Yeah. And so then what would be the, the best term? What, what should I be saying? Personally, I use persistent school absence. Um, I feel that's more factual. You know, they're absent from school. It's not laying any sort of a judgment on anyone as to as to why that is. But it, this simple fact is they're not there and we, we would like to do whatever we can to get them back if that's best for them. Yeah, that, that makes an awful lot of sense. Um, and what might some of the reasons be for that persistent school absence? Well, the reasons do tend to vary, of course, but there are a number of common reasons, both from within my own working with students and also from research that um, that I look at. But I suppose one of the big ones is bullying. Um, there's a lot of research that shows up, upwards to um, 85% of autistic students are bullied in their school environment. Um, and of course, then that leads to not having friends, um, not being able to make or maintain friendships. And what we do know is that for our sense of belonging, you know, we, we need to have at least one friend, you know, one friend we can call on, one friend that will support us. And even in terms of um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's that you need, the need rather, I should say, for belonging, it comes before motivation, it comes before engagement. So we need to have that in order for our students to be motivated to go to school and to be engaged with the educational process. Another reason might be that they um, our, our autistic students feel so much different to their peers. Um, and what we need to be able to do is to be able to support our students to be their best autistic selves and not just a, a paler version of their non-autistic peers. So we need to be able to support them to help 
recognize their own worth and how important they are in terms of being friends, in terms of being um, a part of their school communities. Another reason um, that's that's um, often mentioned is relationships within um, the school environment in terms of the teachers and in terms of other school staff. So a lot of the students would report having negative experiences, and I'm not putting the onus for that on the teachers entirely either, but it's just maybe not really understanding what the student needs in order to be able to, to thrive in this environment. Um, you know, you might have where the student is misunderstood because they say something and it's um, maybe they're they're thinking quite literally about something and they'll say something and the teacher's saying, well, no, that's not how it goes or that's not what we say or um, and they're feeling judged for their own, their, I suppose, input into the class. Um, and it, it if there's many of those things and you think secondary school, you have a lot of different teachers, um, you have a lot of different engagements with people and experiences with different staff. And if that becomes the overriding, even if nobody intends it to be, but that becomes the overriding feeling that you get, then, well, I mean, any of us, we'd be less inclined to go, wouldn't we? So um, another huge factor, of course, and this all it, this, it all plays into this, really, but is anxiety, is anxiety around the school environment, anxiety around engagement, um, around how overwhelming the school environment from a sensory perspective can often be, um, and not being able to... I suppose the anxiety level being too high so that you can't connect or you can't engage um, with your schooling experience. It makes it very hard to get out the door if you're constantly in fear of what might happen then. Or, you know, we talk about in, in, in autism about the intolerance of uncertainty. So what's going to happen? Where should I be? Where do I go next? Who can I talk to? All of those things impact on, on a person's ability to be able to to, to cope in a situation, to withstand a situation, and and even more so to thrive within that. If if they don't have the, they don't have the the skills to be able to do that just yet. Um, another reason would be, and I suppose I just talked about it a little bit there, is things like difficulty with executive functioning. So that organizing and that planning, and if you have to do that, particularly in the secondary school environment, all day every day. You know, it can be hard to keep up and keep on top of where where you're meant to be and what you're meant to have with you. And one of the other ones would be the transition from primary to secondary school. So quite often we'll know, you know, or we'll hear about, but but she was doing so well in, in primary and it was all going very well. She, you know, she had friends and able to cope and um, was doing very well, great student, etc. And then we do the transition to secondary, which is a big step. For any student going into secondary but of course if you're a student um, on the autism spectrum then you have other um, challenges that you need to be able to overcome if it's going to be a successful transition for you and I suppose then we talk about the importance of transition planning and you know the students themselves their involvement in that transition planning so that it can be a very positive experience for them but it's also I suppose something to look out for in the in, in the first year of the secondary school environment is, are those accommodations in place? Is this student getting what they need? Are they happy in their environment? What's working for them? Even looking at what's not working, can we change those things earlier on in their school career, in their secondary school career, so that we decrease the risk of them not being able to attend, say, by the time they get to second year or by the time they get to third year, etc. Brilliant. And as you say, it's it's very layered isn't it because I know yes. like my own experience was a million years ago but 
it was sort of all of those things that you mentioned kind of and and one kind of exacerbated the other in sort of almost a cycle so yeah it's I'd imagine it's very very layered for for everyone that that's impacted by it um and what different forms can that persistent absence take well, again, this would be very individualized, but for example, some students may not be able to attend at all. Um, other students may be able to attend for um, some elements of the school day. Um, other students might be able to attend sporadically. So, for example, they might be able to go Monday and Tuesday, but by Tuesday they're so exhausted they can't go Wednesday, Thursday or Friday. Um, but also, and I was thinking about this before talking to you, I would also argue that we have students who do attend but they're not actively learning and they're not actively participating um, due to their level of stress, due to their level of anxiety. And of course, this is more of a subtle form and it's harder to notice at first, particularly. And, um, and, and if the student is new to you from the perspective of the teacher, of course, you're thinking, oh, there's a nice, quiet student there in the class. This is great, but we're not seeing their internalized stress responses. So if you can't attend and if you can't learn, you're physically at school but you're not receiving your education. So I think that's another one as well. And obviously that's, um, it's important to to talk to parents about that, to be able to fully understand that a bit better. And do you think teachers always see the distress that, that students are experiencing and, and what could they potentially look out for in that scenario? Unfortunately, um, I don't think that teachers and school staff will always recognise or understand the distress that the autistic student is experiencing. And, you know, just as I've mentioned there, if it's an internal stress, um, it's very hard to see, um, especially at the beginning. But thinking about external stress responses to so this might be talking loudly, it might be getting out of your chair, it might be leaving the room. These are often viewed at face value as inappropriate behaviors that need to have a consequence. Um, instead of being understood as something or maybe many somethings that are not working for the student, which is resulting in, in a fight or flight mode. And I mean, as we know, that's the brain's natural response. So at that point, if our students in fight or flight, their amygdala is taken over. You know, it's not on them at that point in time. We need to be looking far before that to be able to understand, OK, what's going on here for the student? Um, what do we need to change? We need to be looking deeper. I think as schools, we need to be looking deeper into the why. Why is this occurring for this for this student? Um, of course, if possible, you want to talk to the student themselves. That's not always possible. Students don't always want to talk about their experiences, positive or negative, you know. Um, so then you talk to the parents, you talk to other staff members, you talk to other key people who are involved with that student to try and get that deeper understanding that I'm talking about. And then in terms of the internal stress responses, again, the relationship between home and school is key here. Um, you know, if a parent is telling you that their son or daughter has a meltdown every day after school, for example, and you are seeing this calm, quiet child in your classroom, then it's likely that they're masking or they're holding it all together until they get home. And then at home in their safe environment, you know, then they're having their meltdown because it's, it's safe for them to do so there. You know, it can be difficult to picture your quiet, your calm student in, in a meltdown, but parents really do need to be believed here. Definitely. And again, from my own experience, um, for my first couple of years of secondary school, my school reports, literally every teacher said very pleasant, very pleasant, very pleasant. <laughs> and my parents were like, who is this child that you're describing? Because when I got home, it all came out, you know, and, and 
I really struggled with sort of trying to contain it all while I was in school and then had to let it out when I got home. Um, so, yeah, and then I, I let it out more in school as I got older as well. But but definitely, I think it's something that that sort of conversation between teachers and, and parents is so, so essential. Um, are there steps that can be taken if a young person is already out of school? Um, there are. Like, It's important that parents stay engaged with the school, not from the point of view of trying to get their child back in through the door immediately, but in terms of keeping that contact and that communication, that open communication with school. But also there are pathways such as um, a referral to the education welfare officer, um, which can be done by the school or the parent. There's also the National Council for Special Education the National Educational Psychology Service or um, the Autism Advisory and Intervention Service in Northern Ireland. There are other options like iSchool in the Republic um, and home tuition under the Med1 form as well might also be considered um, for the student. But I think really it's looking, it's understanding the student and meeting them where they're at, you know. Why is it that they're not in school? Why is it that they cannot go to school? So we also need to remember if the student is out of school, then they're highly likely to be burnt out at this stage. So we need to be able to give them time. We need to be able to listen to the young person to what's stated out loud, but also what's not stated out loud. You know, do we recognize changes in behavior, maybe eating patterns, sleeping patterns, et cetera, and trying to 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 bring um to bring those back in, you know, into into an, a normal rhythm for the young person. Um, you know. What I have found is that the return to school is is usually a very gradual process. Um, we need to identify the reasons for not being able to attend and we need to understand them and mitigate against them if we are expecting the student to be going back into an environment that we know is highly stressful. You know, and, and like education is extremely important, but so is mental health. And so we need to look to that first, in my opinion. Absolutely. And it is really heartening, though, to to know that there are clear steps that can be taken to support someone back into school if that's where they want to be um because yeah I I, I would imagine it's a very anxiety provoking time both for the the young person and for their parents and then the, the reason that I wanted to to chat to you for the podcast was because um we're sort of heading into sort of back to school time now and when I see all those ads for back to school things, my blood runs cold still. Um, so I was just thinking a lot about how someone who is in that situation, a young person who is dreading having to go back to school or has just gone back to school and is feeling uncomfortable about it, um, how they might be feeling. So have you any sort of tips or advice for parents who are sort of seeing that their young person is starting to develop that anxiety around school? Uh, I suppose there's a couple of answers there, Kat. Prior to going back, you know, you, you may want to have a conversation if they're if they're presenting as becoming more anxious about it, having a conversation about, with them about why is that? Is it a particular subject? Is it a particular um, peer group? Is it a particular teacher or time of day? And then is there something that you can go to the school with at the beginning of school to mit again to mitigate against and say, look, my son or daughter is having a huge difficulty with, let's take lunchtime, for example. Can we do something here? Can they go to 
to the library? Can they um, have time by themselves? Is there are there clubs that are run at lunchtime that you know if they're particularly particularly interested in a certain area, etc. And 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 trying to I suppose um, work proactively to be able to decrease anxiety levels for for your son or daughter. Um, also need to consider about. Uh, you know, does the child have co-occurring needs and are those being met? Are those being considered? Because that can be something else as well. So, for example, you know, if you had a um, a diagnosis of ADHD also, well, then there may be other things that you need within your school environment to be able to be successful there. So is that is the school aware of those um, and are they being considered and, and uh, accommodated? Um, having a good routine this is just from a sleep perspective of often before going back to school and having those things in place, being thinking about executive functioning, being organized. So do we have everything ready? So, you know, it, it's not a it's not a, a, a fix all the solution or anything. But again, you're you're decreasing a potential anxiety for for your son or daughter. Also looking at um, the demands that your child will have ac- across their day on the lead up to school. And when they're at school. So, you know, I, I always think of Maya Tudor's energy accounting in this. And we all have a finite amount of energy in the day. Um, and that that energy is even more precious for our autistic students. So if there's a high demand at a certain point in the day or, or, or across a number of days, then we also need to, to, to carve out a low demand time so that they can um, decompress and so that they can have some downtime to be able to get the energy, basically build the energy to be able to to meet the next challenge that they may be facing. Um, Then looking at the school environment, um, you know, questions that I would often, often, um, I suppose, ask. And, you know, we know schools are doing their best and they're trying really hard to support their students. But are we doing that, I suppose, in individually? Are we truly supporting the student? We know it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, does the school take a neuroaffirmative approach? You know, are the students accepted and respected for who they are? Um, are, are the peers, do they have a good awareness of what uh, being autistic means and, and all of the great things that that their autistic peers can bring to the table, you know? Um, and if there are accommodations in place, are they suitable? do they work? Are they what the student actually needs? So I think those are some of the things um, that we can look at in terms of students who are developing anxiety around school and, and trying to trying to support them to stay in school before the anxiety becomes so much that they need to leave. Brilliant. Um, yeah, that's all really helpful advice. Thank you so much, Tara. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you want to know more about Middletown, you can find us on Twitter at Autism Centre or on Facebook or Instagram at Middletown Centre for Autism.